0: Genesis chapter 26, which is kind of nice because on our Wednesday night Bible studies, starting a few weeks ago, uh, we left off about midway of chapter 25, the death of Abraham. And so we're we're essentially uh, picking up where we left off there. Uh, we will be done with Genesis quite soon. In fact, I think... Um, don't quote me on this, because uh, all these passages are starting to run together. I believe Wednesday will be in chapter 36. We'll look at the story of Jacob. So we're looking at Isaac here this evening. We'll look at Jacob Wednesday. And then i like to spend uh, next Sunday evening and the following Wednesday, Lord willing, on Joseph. Um, I've been doing a little bit of research on Joseph and uh, really just been amazed at all that is there. So, uh, But we're in Genesis 26 now. So the twenty-six chapter of the Bible, and we'll do the first 33 verses thereabouts uh, this evening. So if you will, stand with me, reverence of God's word, and uh, we'll we'll read. I don't know if we'll get all the way down to verse 33, but certainly that's the conclusion of the main story. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine, that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the "...people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us." So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, "...whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death." And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundred foe. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now Philistines had stopped to fill the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father." And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley Gerar and settled there. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. He gave them the names that his his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. They then dug another well, and they quarreled over uh, that also. So he called it Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, and for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Father Uh, of Abraham, your father, fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. And Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phil called the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask as we gather you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our mouth, that we would go in obedience to Christ. Transform us through your word, by your spirit, for your glory. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Maybe be. See you then. I'm going to say that As a child of the 90s, it's a good time to be alive, at least when it comes to pop culture, okay? All the other stuff we'll pretend is not happening. But it is a good time to be alive. After all, I am in constant state of nostalgia, right? What was cool back in my day is still cool today, right? I mean, think about it. All the major, the biggest movies out there right now are comic book movies. And back in my day, comic books weren't the coolest thing. They, they had their moment in the sun, but the comic book crash in particular in the 90s meant no one was reading comics. And, and really, even whenever comics were cool, they were there as an investment, not for uh, entertainment. But now, comic books and comic book characters are cool. For example, an example an example, an example, and another example, and another example, and another example. here's another example. Here's another example, and more and more and more and more and more and more. And here's some another one, and we'll just stop right there, right? All of these are multi-million dollar characters, right? And they they all have their own movie, their own franchise, and they get bigger and bigger. And those are just some of the uh, bigger superheroes. I could have easily have done villains, which are often as popular as uh, their hero counterparts. We could add not only are comic books now cool and superheroes cool, but there's other things like Sonic the Hedgehog is cool again, right? I look. The Sega invented Sonic as, as, as someone, uh, as, as a rival to Mario and Luigi, who themselves are cool now, right? You know, and, and so you can still play Sonic the Hedgehog games and, and watch Sonic the Hedgehog movies. By the way, the sequel is coming out soon, and I'm sure it'll star Jim Carrey like the other one, right? And Mario and Luigi, you're still doing all the Mario cards and the Mario games and all of, all of that sort of stuff. Even Zelda's cool now, right? If you don't know what this is because you didn't have a happy childhood. I had my my son go back and play the first Zelda. He was appalled, but he loves the the character. And, And he could tell me all about Zelda and Link and the princess and all this sort of stuff. Not that I care. All I care about is... I remember the first game when it came out. It was cool. It's terrible now, but it was cool back then. And what was cool then is still cool now. Well, that's movies and games. We could even do music, right? In fact, I can give you the perfect example of how what was cool back then is still cool, tongue-in-cheek, even now. You can buy tickets right now. To To Corrupt Arena in Lexington, and you can enjoy a, a, a time of nostalgia. It features the one and only new kids on the block, the boy band before there were boy bands. Let's be honest, right? This is the first of the instincts and the, and, and the back streets and all that sort of stuff, right? It's the mixtape tour of 2022. And notice who it features, right? It features Salt and Pepper. Ah! I never thought I would get you reference New Kids on the Block and Salt and pepper. There's no R in that. Uh, just, just to make sure you know that. In church, Salt and Peppa. Anytime you hear Salt and pepper referenced in church, it's back in the fellowship hall, no doubt. Why? Who, who's in the kitchen committee? Why isn't there any Salt and pepper? Rick Astley, right? He'll never break your heart. He'll never let you go. That's, no one's gonna get that reference. Invoke, I mean, you, you're talking about you know, I mean, you're you're scratching at the ball in the barrel. There, you're starting to get uh, 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 thorns under your nails. I mean, I mean, you can have a nostalgia galore on June 26 in Corrupt Arena, or we could go and I won't have a picture of this because I'm a Christian, but we could go back to the Super Bowl of 2022 halftime show. You remember who it, who, who it, it was on there? No one who's cool anymore, right? Right? It was all nostalgia. It was Dr. Dre. Guess who's back? It was Snoop Dogg. That is an American mistake. It, it had Eminem. He's still around, right? It, it had a Mary J. Mary J, Mary J. Blige, uh, Fifty Cent, who thought he was a bat or something hanging upside down, right? I remember my, my, we were here at church. And man, my wife texted me. She goes, "The, the, the, the halftime show is about to come on." I'm thinking because you know this was '90s culture, and I remember all these artists. Think. That's why I'm not all that eager. Like these, If you're going to be a hip-hop mogul, right, once you're not cool, let it go, right? Just produce music. Don't sing anymore, right? And, and these guys are largely past their prime. Nevertheless, you see there. In fact, I think we can all agree, the best halftime show ever, ever in history, we would all agree on this because Baptists never disagree on anything, came in 2001 My wife and I have been dating a little over a year by then, and I think it was our first Super Bowl we ever watched together. It featured, of course, Britney Spears, sync and Aerosmith. We can agree on that, right? The best one ever, and uh, no one would ever suggest otherwise. So what was old is now new again. And there's good reason for this, right? In Hollywood, sequels are easy to sell. You, you, you've already developed characters and there's an attachment to them. And so if you like the first movie or the first season of the show, whatever, th- there's already an audience built in. And with the Streaming Wars, it is easier to sell universes and, and sequels and familiar uh, uh, characters and story arcs than it is to, to come up with something creative. And so what we have is this cycle, right? Uh, how many more Batmans do we need uh, before we, we discover uh, you know, who it is that, that killed his parents? How many more Spider-Man reboots do we need? In fact, we're talking about rebooting the other Spider-Man reboot, Right? Remember it, so the second Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man was a reboot of the first Spider-Man. No one liked it, so they rebooted the second Spider-Man, which was a reboot of the first, but then in the third version of the Spider-Man, they brought back the first two reboots and everyone liked them now, so now they're wanting to reboot the second reboot uh, because they didn't get to finish the reboots. Right? And it'll make a billion dollars too. Right? These things require a little bit of creativity. But they sell, so what is old is now new. If you read this passage with me, you're probably thinking, Breacher, this, this sounds familiar. Sort of like what we saw this morning in Matthew 15, isn't it? This, this sounds familiar. The details sound a little different, but the overall arc is very similar. In fact, I, I think we could title this, right? If this were a movie, I think we would title it The Patriarch. The Patriarch 2, rather, right? It's a sequel. The Sins of the Father, right? That would be the subtitle. The Patriarch 2, The Sins of the Father. Because what it is we have here is Isaac, he does the same thing essentially what his father does. But through that narrative, we discover some things about God that that Isaac discovers and that we can apply to our lives. The first is promise. This is what it is that we, we are looking for here. And what it is that we find is that Isaac turns into his father. And that is the fear of every adult ever right? And it is inevitable that you will become like at least one of your parents. Someone this morning, mom and dad were here, my sister and niece and nephew, and, and someone, and I'm standing next to my mother, someone says, you look just like her. I'm like, yeah, but I'm turning into my father. And I'll let you decide which one is, is the better option, okay? And, and I, I am turning into my father. I, I've, I've shared this before. I get uh, very impatient. In fact, I apologized to my wife yet again the other day and said, I just need to go ahead and, and apologize in advance because... This is what's coming, okay? <laughs> you, you are going to have to put up with me as you're trying to put up with my father, right? I am heading down that road. And, and that is what Isaac does here is the sins of the father now tempts Isaac. See if this story sounds familiar in these opening verses. A Jewish patriarch wants to flee to Egypt because of a famine in Canaan. Does that story sound familiar? that plot line sound familiar? yeah. We could go back in the story of Abraham. In fact, we can go to the very beginning of the story of Abraham, much like this is the beginning of the story of Isaac, and you will find the same plot. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, we get uh, God calling uh, Abraham out from Ur and Haran, and he, he brings him to Canaan, and he gives him that monumental promise that will be repeated in this chapter. And, and right after he receives the promise of God, what does Abraham do? He does everything he can to contradict it. Okay, God, you're going to make me a blessing to the nations. Okay, God, you're going to give me a son. Okay, God, you're going to do all these things. Okay, what can I do to compromise that? I know I will flee to Egypt, not the promised land, not the land I'm going to be given. And while I'm there, I will hand my wife over to the Egyptians. And guess what Isaac is is threatening to do here? It's the same story. Like father, like son. Now, this isn't unusual. There is a lot of overlap in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The weaknesses, the temptations, and the sins of one are often shared among the others. However, starting in verse 2, along the way, God intervenes on Isaac's behalf, and this is clearly a theophany. That is made clear in verse two, the Lord appeared to him. If we had time, we could, we could look at other similar examples. This is Wednesday night, we probably would, where that language is used in connection to a theophany. God appears, uh, manifests himself before Isaac. And here he intervenes, right? Isaac is packing his bags. He's loading up the U-Haul, says, we're gonna take a very long vacation to Egypt. We are gonna go down into Egypt. Remember that language when we get to Joseph next week. And, and God says, no, don't do that. I want you to remain in Canaan. Now, the logic of going to Egypt makes sense, right? Because in Egypt, there is always water. The Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. In Canaan, there is always famine. And so when there isn't a sufficient amount of water, and if you're raising sheep and everything else, you have to have water. Then your best option is to go down into Egypt. But God says, don't do that. He intervenes in verses three to five. He, he returns, Isaac returns to the covenant of blessing that, that, that had been given to, to Abraham. So Isaac here listens and notice he, he is told to sojourn in the lands. That language will appear later as, as Isaac goes from one well to another, one land to another. He is told to, to sojourn. And this is the land given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It is not to be Egypt. So in a nutshell, God calls on Isaac to trust in his promises, even amid famine and struggle. Notice what God does not say is, look, if you'll stay here, I'll solve all your problems. Rather, he says, if you will stay here, the promises I gave to your father will be given to you at my timing and in my way. So just as Abraham had to wait patiently with faith for the coming of Isaac, so too Isaac will have to wait and struggle in a desert during a famine for the water to come. So what we see here then is that economic and emotional suffering does not mitigate the blessing of God. Isaac is blessed of God, as this theophany demonstrates and yet amid that suffering or amid that blessing is great suffering. His family will suffer. His wife will suffer. His crops will suffer. His domesticated animals will suffer. But if he will wait on the Lord, the promises are clear. And so for the, for, for the patriarchs, patience and faith go hand in hand. And that is true not just for them. It is equally true for us. And so Isaac stands before his tree, doesn't he? He must make a choice. Will he believe in the promises of God and stay in Canaan? Or will he do what his father did and choose the wrong fruit, choose the wrong tree and go down to Egypt? Well, Abraham, as you may recall, made the wrong choice. He went down to Egypt. Later, he slept with Hagar he, um, and everything else. Isaac makes the right choice. I give him that credit. He makes the right choice. He chooses to stay in the promised land. Look, trusting in the promises of God are easy when things are going well. But when times turn tough and stress levels rise, doubts arise, but suddenly what we often do is we jump to conclusions That God can't be trusted. This is a frustration I've seen in nearly 20 years of ministry. That when things are going well, it's easy to trust in God. But faith is demonstrated when it's not easy to trust in God. Have you ever had to do that with your kids? You ever had to say, look, I need you to trust me here. You need to know that at all times, I love you and I have your interest in mind. And your best interest in mind. Have you ever had to do that with the kids? I'm sure you have at some point. And, and you, know, you can see the, their wheels are turning. They're trying to think, well, if you have my best interest in mind, then why can't we go to Disney World or whatever the issue might be, right? So, too, it is easy to trust in the promises of God when things are going okay. It's a, it's a test of faith when they aren't going as well. Here, Isaac chooses to stay. So we see the promise made in the first few verses. Then we see the presence of God in verses 6 to 16, or really even beyond that. Notice in verse 6, "...initially Isaac settles in Canaan rather than migrating to Egypt." where there is sufficient water for his sheep and family. So Isaac settled in Gerar, is what verse 6 says. Now Gerar is the same location where Abraham had conflict with Abimelech, who's the king of Gerar, really the king of the Philistines, right? And we spent some time on King Abimelech, and and there is some debate regarding this Abimelech. Is it the same guy as Abraham deal with, or is it a different guy? And either option is very real and possible. If you think it's the same guy, I would point you to some evidence that later uh, his, his commander, has the same name as the one that Abraham encountered, right? Um, However, it could be a different Abimelech, right? After all, at this time, kings would often adopt the same name. Like we may have Mr. President, right? If I were to say Mr. President, well, there's like four or five living presidents now who still receive that title, and really goes all the way back to George Washington, who didn't want to be called his Excellency. As John Adams wanted him to be called, Mister President was more, were more, was more simple and less monarchical. And so you can say Mister President applies to all the presidents. I think we're on forty-five, forty-six, something like that. So, so, so. Uh, Back then, Abimelech could have easily have been a title of the king. It just means my father is king, right? And so it's possible that this Abimelech is the son of another Abimelech whose father had the title of Abimelech and so on and so forth. Well, either way, the, the, the similarity of name or really the matching of the name is on purpose. If you couldn't tell by the plot, The repetition of its characters is on purpose, right? Moses wants you to see this is essentially the same story. And the question is, will Isaac trust not just in the promise of God, but will he lean into the presence of God? Now notice, though he doesn't commit the same sin of Abraham fleeing to Egypt, he will commit the same sin of his father by trading off his wife to Abimelech. That starts there in verse 7. Uh, When men of the place, that's in Gerar, asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. This reads almost verbatim of what Abraham did with Sarah in Egypt and later with the Philistines and King Abimelech. So like Abraham, Isaac passes his wife off as his sister. Now you remember, Abraham justifies it as saying, "Well, we kind of are siblings, right?" Um, and Isaac could could say, "Well, we kind of are related. I mean, we are cousins." But no, he he is wanting them to know we are full blooded. She is my sister, and the rationalization is, I don't want to be. Hurt. I don't want to be killed. I don't want some guy to come in and threaten my life because of the beauty of my wife. Now, now was, I think there's a few things to, to point out here. One is it's it's a reminder of the Jewish hesitancy to go into the city. We talked about this Tower of Babel, right? The city is where bad people are. And one of the things that stuck out to me is the similarity we have here with something like Sodom and Gomorrah. What is that story? It is where Lot is hospitable to what appear to be men. They're angels, but, but they, they, they're, they're described as men. And, and in his effort to be hospitable, the people of the city come to take them by force. And we see a hesitancy from both Abraham and Isaac that when they enter to the city, there's a presumption that my wife is in danger and... When she's in danger, now I'm in danger. They will harm me to get to her. The safest way to protect her and the best way to protect her is to not show our marriage certificates. To to put our rings in our baggage or leave them at a home just in case. Well, I don't know if we're supposed to see that connection or not with Sodom, but, but it is it is striking that the honesty in which the Bible Uh, describes the insatiable lust of men, I think is something that we should be honest about ourselves. This is why taming men is one of the highest priorities of a functioning society. And that's one of the problems with feminism is that it is played into the lust of men by saying, hey, we can be just like you. Let me tell you, ladies, you can't, nor do you want to be like men. What, the, what tames a man is domestication. He's got to win the girl. He's got to work for her, provide for her, protect her. And when a society undoes that, what you get is you feed into this insatiable lust. But nevertheless, so, so, so it moves on to verse eight. It isn't long before King Abimelech discovers it's all a ruse. And this language is interesting. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter because Abraham and Sarah laughed when the promise was given to them. And he is caught Laughing with Rebecca, and it's the same word used to describe Sarah and Abraham laughing over the promise of, of Isaac. And so, so, um, and so, on one hand, well, this makes sense. Brothers and sisters laugh, of course they do, right? I had some blast with my sister today, and uh, my brother and I will call, we will say a few jokes and and whatnot. Of course, siblings laugh. Uh, when you're growing up, they rarely laugh together, but it will come. Parents, it will come. Um, But the way couples laugh with one another is very different. I mean, I've told you before, my favorite person to make laugh in this world is without a doubt my wife. She's heard all the jokes, right? And usually when I tell a joke, she's she gives the uh, the wife grin, like, "You tried, you know, you know, it's it's you tried." You, I didn't marry you for your sense of humor. In fact, I don't know. You're not tall, dark, and handsome, so I don't know why I married you. But, but when she does laugh, she has this, this laugh that, is, that just, I just love. I really do, 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 do love that. And, and the way couples laugh is different than the way siblings laugh. We know this. This is why there is some disagreement over how to translate this, this verse. Actually, let me give you a few examples here. We'll start with the Bible, of course, the King King James Bible. Notice it says, and saw and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. That's an interesting word they choose. Remember, this is translation 500 years ago, sporting, it, it plays on the uh, playfulness between between them here. But it's still ambiguous, right? Or the new King James used the word uh, endearments, which is an interesting uh, choice. The NASB, the Christian Standard Bible, the Baptist Bible, the NIV, and even the, uh, um, I think that's the, uh, uh, the Net Bible, which is one of my favorites, it got cut off there at the bottom, it uses the word caressing. So it really offers an interpretive translation here. The word is laugh, but what is, what is it the writer is trying to uh, uh, convey here? Well, regardless of my, my be, Abimelech looks and sees there's, this relationship runs deeper than siblings. They are clearly in a romantic relationship. And so in verses nine through 11, he confronts them, right? Uh, Abimelech calls Isaac out. And the justification that Isaac gives mirrors that of his father in Egypt. He feared for his life and the security of his family. But what we need to see here is more than mere repetition. Remember the promises given to Abraham includes those who bless you, I will bless. That is to say that Abraham was then to be a blessing to the nations. Through you, the nations will be blessed. And yet both Abraham and Isaac, almost immediately when they become the focal point of the story, risk becoming a curse to the nations. So Abraham will go down to Egypt and then later he'll do the same thing with Abimelech of the Philistines. Isaac, it's now his story in Genesis. What does he do? He goes down to the Philistines and he does the same thing. Yes, he's like his father. And it's about more than risking the the well-being of his wife. It is also about contradicting the promises of God. He is called to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, he is bringing a curse upon them because if someone takes Rebekah, who is a necessary component of the promise, then cursing will come upon them. And Abimelech knows this. And so what we end up getting is the nations have to rebuke the people of God. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore, right? Whenever the nations or the culture has to call out the church for inappropriate behavior, for tolerating things it shouldn't tolerate or or having a hypocrisy here and there. We should receive that as a very strong rebuke in the way that we we see it here with Abraham and Isaac and later Jacob. We are called to, to be an example to the nations, to be a blessing to the nations, but too often that road gets flipped. Well, what Abimelech says, when he figured it out, he says, look, I'll take care of it. No one is going to touch you. No one will touch your wife. That word touch is so interesting, isn't it? Because that is what Eve feared the most. We shouldn't even touch of the fruits because the day in which you touch of it, you will eat of it. It's just interesting parallels that, that we have here. And we are to see Isaac is at his own little tree of temptation, as was Abraham before him and Noah before him and so on and so forth. Well... Nevertheless, notice starting verse twelve that the that Isaac is really blessed here. Isaac sowed in that land, the land of Canaan, among the Philistines. He reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, remember the context. Do not miss the context. There's a famine in the land, a famine, and yet when he sows, he reaps a hundredfold. By the way, this strong uh, return on what he reaps is hinted at by Jesus. You remember when he tells those, the, the, the sower who sowed seed on the ground, right? Remember he says that on the good soil, it, it, it sowed up to a hundredfold. He may be referencing this story, right? This is miraculous. We should see it as miraculous. This is, this is not something that happens normally. It really is the, the divine work of, of God. But regardless, the Lord blesses him. And beyond the blessing of crop reproduction, verse 14, he, he grows in flocks, herds, and servants. I remember, Abraham was blessed when he went down to Egypt with all this. Isaac stays in obedience to God, and he's blessed with all of this. Clearly, the Lord is good to Isaac despite his failures. That's the real amazing part, isn't it? Don't, don't overlook that part. Not only is there a famine physically, there's a famine spiritually in Isaac. And yet God blesses both. He allows the crops to grow and he blesses Isaac, though he is a man of many failures. Well, as I said this morning, you never leave high school, right? And our attitudes now are, they mirror that of high school. And so remember back in high school, if you saw that person and they were successful at things that you weren't successful in, did you, in between class, go up to them and say, I am just so happy for you. Did, you? did you do that as a teenager? No. You don't do it as an adult. You see that neighbor across the street? Their family looks picture perfect. At least according to Facebook and Instagram, it does. Do you go across the street and say, man, what an example you are to me. Maybe we can have some coffee. I just like to pick your brains about, about, about just, just, just what God's doing. you. Like, do you ever do this? No. You're going to find out a reason not to like them. I'm not going to hit like on that picture, right? (laughs) You know, we do this. So here comes a sojourner. Remember what God said. You will be a sojourner in the land. Here he is, and that's in verse 3. So here he is. He sojourned among the Philistines. He possesses no land. Despite the promise, he will inherit the land. He's a sojourner and here he comes just walking in new kid in class right and all of a sudden everything seems to go his way right he's he's the captain on the varsity team he, he's got the pretty girl he's got everything that they, everybody wants and what is the response not gratitude not blessing not encouragement but envy if only i could think of people who struggle with that today right it's the same thing it's like in high school and this word, envy, is a dangerous word in Genesis. It is first used here. It is the seed that when it sprouts, it produces much wickedness and hurt. Let me give you two examples in Genesis alone. In Genesis 30, Rachel saw that she bore no children to Jacob. That's a bad thing. Now remember, Rachel is loved by Jacob. He is, she is adored by Jacob. Right? She, 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 is, she is everything he has ever wanted in a, in a bride. And he 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 adores her. He he treats her well and, and anything she wants, he goes out of his way to serve her, right? She is everything. But her sister, her sister has no problem getting pregnant. And envy blinds her to the blessings that her husbands give her, the blessing she has in God, and envy turns her to hatred. So to Leah over here, she, she is blessed. She is fruitful, which is the blessing in Genesis. But Jacob forgets their anniversary every year. He won't do that to Rachel. And so she she bypasses and overlooks the blessings of God and out of envy turns to hatred towards her sister. See, we are to see in Rachel and Leah the same Heart wickedness we see in all the siblings in Genesis. Cain and Abel, we've talked about this on Wednesday nights. Cain and Abel, uh, Hamsham and Japheth, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, uh, 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 Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, right? It's the same sort of thing that now lies not just in brothers, but now in sisters. They they, they overlook the blessings of God and envy feeds their, their bitterness, their hatred, their anger. So this is a real problem. The Philistines, they envy Isaac. It's not fair, they say. I'm glad we don't use that language anymore. It's not fair. So what do they do? They expel him. I wish we had time for that. The the theme of exile and exaltation runs rampant through Genesis. In fact, when we get to Joseph, we'll probably spend some time on that. So just make a little footnote in your Bible, expulsion, uh, exile, right? Which will then be picked up in the story of, of Israelites in the Exodus, right? They will be exiled uh, there uh, as, 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 as well. So anyways, so, so he, is, he is expelled from the Philistines. And uh, it doesn't come by court order. It comes by bullying. Remember what I said, you never leave high school. And so what you got are are those, those bullies, right? From third hour, they come and they see that Isaac is doing well. He has a spring. He has a well in the wilderness. Now remember, in Genesis, where you see water in the wilderness, think garden. Think the blessings of God. So remember, the Garden of Eden... Is, is, is a garden inside of Eden. And Eden is, is part of the wilderness of the earth. And you are to extend the, the reach of it. And so the rivers are important in, in, in the garden. And so now what it is throughout the story is the world is a wilderness physically and spiritually. And so God blesses his people by providing for them a well, an oasis, a spring, a river in the wilderness. Isaac has that here. And he has received that well from his father. His father and his servants first dug this, so he receives it. But what do the nations now come to? They come to sabotage. They come, they fill it up with dirt. That's a problem. That is a problem. Mom and dad's house used to have a well in it. And for years, it was a big hole in their backyard. If you could dig down into that old well now, you would find at least 100 dozen baseballs. And my brother and I, we would play in the backyard, and we would throw and throw and throw. And, Of course, we're boys, right? And we didn't just play pitch and catch. What we played was, I'm Nolan Ryan, catch, right? <laughs> you know, you know, right to your forehead, right there, boom, right. And and, and so so we wouldn't miss it, and we would do all sorts of stuff. And then and then it would just go down down the hole, like it gone. You know, I don't know what to do. And there's probably soccer balls down there. There's probably basketballs down there. There's uh, little birdies from Badminton are down there. It's hard telling what all is, 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 is down there. Um, and then eventually dad filled it up with, with dirt. So now it's useless. Well, that's what it is that, that, that they do here. They, they fill them up uh, with dirt. And so what, what happens, that's, that's the first, right? By the way, we should note this is a personal attack on Isaac, targeting his livelihood, targeting his family, targeting his his legacy. Remember, in this culture, your family lineage is part of who you are. Now, imagine if someone targets you and bullied you in such a way that affected your livelihood and your ability to take care of your family. Something tells me, at best, you'll write a strong-worded Facebook message about it. Well, he moves on to the next place, takes the high row, verse 16. And the hostility grows, and Abimelech expels him. He, again, has another well filled. And what must he do? He must move on from one place to another, still living by faith. Remember, God says, stay in the land of Canaan. He's believing the promise of God. And what has it got him? Nothing but trouble. Nothing has gone his way thus far. And so, verse 17 to 22, the animosity just keeps following him. He digs another well, verse 17. He restores it. What happens? He's expelled again. He is exiled. So he digs out another one, verse 21. And one wonders at this point if he's thinking, maybe, maybe I should have just gone down to Egypt. That would have been easier. Finally, verse 22, he digs another well and no one quarrels over it. Each of these wells he gives a name. The name is basically given in the verse, contention and whatnot. Here, he names Rehoboth, which can mean wide roads, wide streets, or it can mean wide open spaces. Yeah, right? That's what it means. Wide open, wide spaces. This moment does matter in the story. This sojourner has planted a new home that neither wickedness of the nations nor natural disasters will affect. Don't miss that detail, this is so good, right? Because like his father before him, Isaac is proven to be a soldier and everywhere he goes, he finds hostility. Remember what the promise of Genesis 3.15 is, the seat of the woman, will have enmity with the seed of the serpent. And what has Isaac found? He is the seed of promise. He is the offspring of promise, the son of promise. And what has he found? Nothing but enmity, nothing but a hostility. And he, it's, it's, he, Don't go down to the Egyptians, you're gonna find hostility there. So he goes to the Philistines, what does he find? Hostility, 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 hostility. Finally, finally, after all this frustration, he finds a place, he, he builds a well, he finds water in the wilderness, he finds a garden, he plants a home. Here, the Lord blessed Blesses him in a place where neither natural disaster or human wickedness will affect him. He has been blessed with wealth, land, and property. He has found an oasis in the wilderness. This is a makeshift Eden. In fact, that's what the language wants us to see. Notice again, verse 22. He moved from there, dug another well. They did not quarrel over it. He called his name Rehoboth. For now the Lord has made room for us. He, he has opened up the road for us. Wide open spaces. Notice the language. We will be fruitful. That takes you all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Here, you will be fruitful and you will multiply. That language is not accident. And this Eden is confirmed starting in verse 23 with the presence of God. From there, he went up to Beersheba, And the Lord appeared to him. Same language that we saw in verse 2. It's a theophany. It's the second theophany in the story. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. You see the garden? You see the themes? You see the first theophany, you remember that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? Here God appears at in the evening time in the cool of the day. And in if the first theophany was to affirm God's promises to Isaac, the second theophany affirms God's presence with Isaac. Even in famine, even in strife, even in frustration, Even in doubt, God assures Isaac he will not be abandoned. I think one of the things that may be helpful here is for us to understand the difference, at least in theological terms, between the transcendence and the imminence of God. That's a fancy way of saying that the transcendence of God is usually what we think of God. That is, that God is on his throne up there. He's way over there. You can't even reach him, even if you build a large tower, we learned last week. That is the transcendence of God. He is greater than us. He is beyond us. He is over us. He is, he is, he is way above us. That is God's transcendence. And, and if, if, if we're not careful and we allow that view of God to be the, the only view of God, we, 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 we imagine a God who remains distant. He isn't interested in not just the affairs of the world, but my affairs in this world. And so so, so we keep God at a distance. He's not worried about us, and we shouldn't worry about him. That sort of deism is prominent in our world today. But in the Bible, though that is true, and God God exercises his lordship over the earth, and he sits upon his throne, right? The Bible portrays God not just as transcendent, but also as immanent. This is to say that though God is there, God is also here. God is in control of all things. God is also with his people. Both are true in the Bible. And we should see God's eminence as demonstrated in the story of Isaac here as good news. First of all, it is a source of grace. Psalm 27 says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What is he crying for there? Grace. God's grace. He says that God's grace is only possible not just if you are Lord over all, but you are Lord near me. It is good news also, not only because it is a source of grace, it is a source of answered prayer. Again, Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Sounds like Isaac could have written that, not David. Hear my prayer. God hears our prayers because he is imminent towards us. This is a source of comfort for us. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And then it cuts it off there. You, You can see the point. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, you see what great comfort that is? By the way, some of us have to learn this the hard way. Like Jonah, who imagined a God who's in the distance, who only responds with judgment towards Gentiles and grace towards Jews. And so when God said, I want to extend grace to those people, Jonah tried to flee from God's presence. And what he found is God will come down to Sheol. Read Jonah 2. It's a language he uses. I sunk into Sheol, the the belly of the sea monster, and you found me. I can't run. I can't hide. So God's presence, Isaac learns, is an act of grace. He was a failure. He made big mistakes and he was a sinner. Yet here comes God, reconciling with sinners. He's a man of constant sorrows, we could say. What does God do? He answers his prayer. My promises are assured. My presence is always with you. And he gives them great comforts. Do not respond with envy, with greater envy and bitterness. Move forward, trust in the promise of God, and know I will never leave you. Well, I think it's obvious how we make a connection to Jesus, isn't it? Isn't this why John will say that the word, the Logos, became flesh and tabernacled among us? We beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son. Isn't this why when the angel came to Mary and says, you will name him Jesus for he saved his people from his sins, and and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And what is it that we have in Christ? Grace. We sang it this morning, didn't we? God's grace. Grace that is, that is greater than all of our sin. And in Christ, do we not have an answer to our prayers? Our great high priest, whoever makes intercession for us, if we would cry out to him, and do we not have comfort? Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews would tell, you, tell us why. Because he told us, I will never leave you or forsake. Isn't that good news? Suffering, despair, animosities, hurt, pandemics, international chaos, high gas prices, a struggling country, moral malaise. The promises of God are assured, as is his presence. Let's pray.